Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you will, find in your copy of Scripture, Hebrews 13. We're going to read uh, the first paragraph of this chapter in just a moment, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Um, we are here on Memorial Day, and uh, we are celebrating our Savior who gave us life and gave us eternity. We're also remembering uh, those who gave everything so that we could have freedom. I think the line at Memorial Day is all gave some, but some gave all, gave everything. And the freedom that you and I have to worship freely uh, here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church on this day is because men over the last 200 plus years gave their lives in America's war for independence and other wars to secure our freedom. In fact, one of my greatest joys as just a, a reader, I love history. I love hearing and reading about history, especially the history of, of uh, battles and, and the wars that were fought. And one of the things that strikes me, particularly uh, in, in one instance about World War II, if you're familiar with the Band of Brothers series and Lieutenant Dick Winters and, and those stories, they're fascinating. They're fascinating because a lot of times men signed up to go to war because they believed in the cause. They believed that there was a need to secure freedom. They believed there was a need to fight evil or fight some kind of, uh, some kind of something that was wrong in the world. And so the battle was to secure what was right. But what's interesting is when you hear them tell their stories, what kept them on the battlefield or what stabilized them when they were in the middle of, of gunfights and bullets were flying around. It wasn't the, the philosophical adherence to the cause. I know I'm right, and I'm going to be here. You know what it was? It was that they were fighting for their brother who was right there next to them. They had developed a camaraderie with their, their team, their band, their company, whoever it was. They had developed a camaraderie where they were fighting to make sure that man had a chance to live, and that man was fighting to make sure his brother had a chance to live. Indeed, they were fighting for brotherly love. That was kind of the, the heart at what keeps those men who secured our freedom, kept them on the battlefield fighting in such terrible circumstances. The reason I share that is that's at the outset of exactly what God says to his people through the writer of the book of Hebrews, as he moves from the theological to the practical. Spent 12 chapters looking at how Jesus uh, fulfilled the Old Testament law, how he exemplified the gospel, and then we move in chapter 13 to much more exhort exhortation, practical uh, implications for the Christian life. And I want you to get the, 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 the mix there in the image God does not start with us by telling us, here's our responsibility. Here's what you do. Here's your Christian duty. It's not the way he begins our Christian experience. He doesn't begin with our actions. He doesn't begin with our obedience. He begins with Jesus. Hebrews 1, Jesus is our great high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. He is the one who rescued us. He is the one who provided for us. Chapter 12, he is God, our consuming fire, worthy of worship and adoration and submission. That's who God is. He introduces himself to us through the gospel. Then, as we've been redeemed, made right, changed, forgiven, brought into a family of faith, then, based on the redemption that we've experienced, God says to us, here's how I want you to live. 
It's living out the faith that God has brought to us. So there are Christian duties, responsibilities, primary implications, and applications for our Christian living. But get the order. We don't do these things in order to get to God. We do these things because God came to us in Jesus Christ, and he wants us to live out a, a method and a lifestyle that exemplifies the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Folks, the primary, our primary Christian duty as the kingdom of God on earth, as God's family, as people in the community of God, our primary responsibility is to continue in brotherly love. Verse 1, that is the, the, the implication of everything God wants us to do as Christians. You know me, for those of you that have been here any length of time, we're working through doctrines on Wednesday night. I love doctrines. I love teaching Scripture. I love the intricacies of, of the interconnections of the Old and New Testament. I love how the book of Hebrews shows Jesus to be the fulfillment. And there are some things that we need to know as Christians, absolutely no doubt. We need to deepen our faith and understanding. But let me just remind you, our primary obligation as Christians is not to know more, it's to love. It's our primary obligation. The great commandment is to love God. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the writer moves to chapter 13, verse 1. After all this doctrine, after all this gospel, after all this, here's what Jesus has done and who Jesus is to redeem you. He says, continue in brotherly love. The word continue is the same root as the root for remain or persevere which is a theme throughout Hebrews. Stay in the faith. Persevere. Don't lose sight. Don't neglect the gospel that you've received. Don't turn back to Old Testament patterns. Stay with Jesus. And so then he says, continue, remain, persevere in what? Brotherly love. The Greek word there is Philadelphia. Phileo, love. Adelphos, love brothers. That's the implication. We're to love one another. So that's our obligation. And then what he does is he bears that out in four practical applications. We're to love one another. That's our primary obligation as Christians. How do we do that? How do we do that in our daily behavior? He gives four Christian duties. The first one is this. We're to show hospitality. Now, why is it that we're to show love? Why is it that we're to show hospitality? Here's the bottom line, folks. When we as Christians live out our Christian faith through love, it is countercultural and spiritually formative. You want to shape yourself as a follower of Jesus? Love others and love those around you. Love your neighbors and your Christian family members. Love strangers. You want to grow as a follower of Jesus? Love those who are hard to love and love those who are not like you and love those who are difficult. It's spiritually formative and it is not the world. The world tells you to find a tribe. The world tells you to find a group of people that you agree with And then you live in an echo chamber where all you hear is what they say. And you just get in that tribe, and if you fight with another tribe, that's fine. 
you fight with that tribe, you get, you, you, you get frustrated with, with others. That's what the world tells you to do. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. Jesus tells us to love one another, love our brothers, and to love strangers, to show hospitality. There's a play on words here. In the, the first verse, brotherly love, Philadelphia, and then the, the second verse, show hospitality, the writer uses this word, phileo xenos. So phileo adelphos, the love of brothers, phileo xenos, the love of strangers. And that, that word phileo, we would say, is maybe not as strong as the Greek word agape, which is John's use of the word, favorite word for love in both his gospel and the letters, where he talks about others-oriented or a love that, that totally is selfless that God shows to us. But I want you to know in the, in the New Testament, those words are used interchangeably. Even Jesus, when he spoke to Peter there in the last part of the Gospel of John, the, John writes those words interchangeably. On one occasion, Jesus says, do you phileo me? And on another occasion, do you agape me? In other words, do you love me? They're interchangeable. So the implication is that you and I as Christians are to love our brothers, those who are in the family, and we're also to love strangers. We're to show hospitality. Now, he says it in the negative. Do not neglect to show hospitality because it's easy to neglect that. It's a hard thing to show love to strangers. Why would he write this? Well, specifically, you've got to go back to the first century. See, we're living in, in the 21st century. When we gather for church, we gather in this beautiful building. It, and we have some uh, 200 and plus some folks in this worship service. And, and we could gather in one service, but we wouldn't have enough room for everybody that is gathered in all three of our services together in one service. And we're grateful for that. We gather in a space where we can worship, a church building. In the first century, they didn't have church buildings. When they gathered for congregational worship, they gathered in somebody's home. So many of you, as church members, are inviting people to, to church. You're inviting people to Wilkesboro Baptist. And I'm grateful that you are. I've invited people to our church, and we need to keep inviting people so they'll hear the gospel and they'll come to know Christ. Keep inviting folks. That's good, but we're inviting them to a place. In the first century, when you invited someone to your church, you would have been inviting them to somebody's home. Hey, come with me to somebody's house. We're going to talk about Jesus. So that person who would open their home for church would have been making their, their, their home available for people they knew and for people they didn't know. So do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers practically meant opening your home up so that others could hear the gospel and know Christ. It, that extended beyond just the gathering of church or the gathering of a meal. It moved into actually giving them a place to stay. There were inns in the first century but they were not like your Hotel 6 or your Holiday Inn Express. They weren't safe. They didn't make you better or smarter like the Holiday Inn Express claims to today. Um, it, they, they were more like brothels, or they were not places where you could be guaranteed your safety. So one of the, impl one of the pictures from the Old and New Testament, you see it all the way back to Abraham and Lot. It, one of the pictures is opening your home up so that people would have a safe place to sleep at night. That's Christian hospitality. Now, we don't necessarily have to practice it exactly like that today, but we do and are under obligation to practice Christian hospitality. This command and this implication hasn't changed from the first century to today. You and I are to be hospitable toward others. That's just a bottom line in the New Testament. Hospitality is inconvenient. 
Opening your home up or opening your life up to let someone else in is not easily done. It's just not. Let me illustrate it this way. Some of you in the room know what it's like to be a parent. And you know what it's like when you brought that little stranger home from the hospital. Or you picked them up from a children's home and you fostered them or you adopted them. You brought that little one into your house. And you know what? They slept when you wanted them to be awake. They were awake when you wanted them to sleep. They were noisy when you wanted them to be quiet. They were quiet when you wanted them to be noisy. They didn't listen. They were, they were difficult. And why? Because they're babies, right? And what did you say? As a parent, did you ever say, well, they're inconvenient. I'm just going to leave them alone. Hope not, right? What do we do? We loved them. We fed them. We rocked them. We took care of them because the strangers became family. They were a part of our family. And it is inconvenient, but Christians, to put other people in your lives is inconvenient. And the body of Christ being hospitable means that we need to be known by others and we need others to know us. Now, for some of us, that's, that's hard to do. Uh, one of our pastors, Pastor Tad, our associate pastor, you saw him earlier, he is an extrovert. He loves people. He just loves people. The pandemic was very hard for him. Okay, it's hard for him not to be around lots and lots of people. And I'm grateful for extroverts. I'm not one of them. Okay, I, I would rather have a book or, or watch a sporting event at my house. Okay, that, that's me. And I struggle with the command for hospitality. My wife doesn't. She, she makes beautiful meals and loves to invite people over. I, I struggle with that because for me, she accused me of being in a bubble, living in my, like my Christian bubble. Because wherever I go, I see church people. And when I go home, I'm, I, can, I can kind of have respite because, like I said, I'm an introvert. And yet the Bible is very clear. We're not to neglect showing hospitality to one another. You know why? Because you and I need one another. And not just in the setting of gathered church. I, I love it when you're here on a Sunday morning. I love it when you go to Sunday school classes and discipleship groups. But I'm going to tell you something. We need people to know us, and we need to know people, and that has to happen beyond just the gathered worship experiences. You can hide a lot in a church service, and so can I. You can hold a lot in and not let it out in a church service or even in a Sunday school class. Hospitality invites people to be around one another in a conversational setting. It kind of anticipates the idea that we're going to be visiting with one another. That's why Baptists have been notoriously good for those uh, you know, family-covered dishes, right? I grew up as in, a, in the home of a pastor, a PK. I loved the family gatherings at church because the pastor always got invited. And we got to go through those lines and eat, eat all those wonderful meals that people in the church cooked. That's why next week when we gather for breakfast and then we gather after our member meeting, that's Christian hospitality. It's the idea that we're going to sit down and we're going to have a meal together and converse. That's the picture of what hospitality looks like. It's not like when you go to the restaurant. Some of you are going to go to lunch. And what you're going to see is a whole lot of people at the table and they're going to be like this. They're not going to be talking. They're going to be on their phone. You know what we need as Christians? We need to be in places where we set aside all the distractions so that we can actually talk to one another. We need to do that in our families, but we need to do that in Christian environments where we're doing life together. That's the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it. Living life together. Christian hospitality is something you and I need to do in order 
to exemplify the love that we have. Some people have entertained angels that way. Uh, That's what he says. Uh, That's going back to Lot and to Abraham in the Old Testament, where Christian hospitality welcomed angels into their home. Indeed, in Abraham's case, one of those visitors was God enfleshed, was a pre-incarnate version of Jesus as Abraham met him in that day. Some of you may have been hospitable to a stranger who was an angel. There's another reason why we should show Christian hospitality. Remember, it's loving the stranger. It's because it's a great way to be evangelistic. A few weeks ago, we were talking on Wednesday night about how to share our faith. And one of the challenges for us as Christians sharing our faith is do we know lost people? And are we able to interact and engage in evangelistic conversations with lost people? Guess what? One of the best ways to be evangelistic is to open your home to people who don't know Jesus. Let them in your home, share a meal with you, converse with them, talk with them about life, and eventually talk with them about faith. One of my favorite stories where that's the case is uh, is testified by a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria was a, a lesbian who was a professor at an Ivy League school, and she set out to write a book uh, arguing against evangelical Christians who were antagonistic and hateful toward those in the LGBTQ lifestyle. That's what she set out to do. And knowing that she was writing that book, she wanted to interact with and interview Christians. So she found a local pastor in her community. She said, here's the book I'm writing. May I interview you as the opposing side for my book? Pastor and his wife invited her into their home, let her interview them, and then after the interview, they invited her to stay for dinner. And she came back and interviewed them again, and they invited her again to stay for dinner. And over a course of weeks and months, showing Christian hospitality to someone whose values and belief system was different than theirs, Rosaria Butterfield became a follower of Jesus. She turned from her sins, she became a Christ follower, and she wrote a wonderful little book entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. What she promotes is Christian hospitality. Radical opening her home up to anybody and everybody in her neighborhood, and her family. Why? So that they can see Jesus in the meal and hear about Jesus from people that are Christians. Christians, we have an obligation to show hospitality. A second Christian responsibility, Christian duty, is to remember those in prison. Look there at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you're in the body. Now, the implication here is they're mistreated, they're under persecution. Uh, So we, in the 21st century America, may not have many people in our country who are facing prison time because of their faith. But Christian history, for 2,000 years, has evidenced that prison, for those who follow Jesus, is, is kind of the norm in many places. In fact, here in the United States, seminary, I had a chance to go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for my master's degree and my doctorate degree. And that that was my seminary degree. But if you wanted to go to seminary in China, it's not a school where you get training. In fact, in some places, in house churches in China, you cannot be the pastor of a church until you have gone to their seminary, which is prison. In order to be understood to be a pastor, you have to have spent time in jail for sharing the gospel. 
And so the implication is, in the, the first century, the readers, the original readers of the book of Hebrews, some of their family, some of their church family, some of their body was in prison being mistreated for their faith, for sharing their faith. And the writer says, remember them. Don't neglect to care for those who are in prison, care for their families, minister alongside of them. Maybe, uh, well, that's been true of churches all across our, our world for 2,000 years. Maybe our church one day will have to do that. We'll have to care for those and their families who are in prison for sharing and living out the gospel. I hope not. I hope that's not the case in our country, but it's possible it could be. At the very least, what we ought to remember as Christians is the freedoms we have, we ought to be very, very thankful for. We ought to live those out faithfully, but we ought to care for those who are not so, uh, not so blessed. You can go to websites like persecution.org or Open Doors International. They're Christian ministries whose aim is to share the gospel behind closed doors in closed nations, and in particular, to provide for and help those who have family members who are in prison for the gospel. We're to remember those who are in prison. How can we put that in practice in our church today? We can simply remember those who are in prison. Those who are in jail, those who are in prison, are marginalized, and they need the gospel, and they need the love of Jesus. In our very own church, Larry Ford is the chaplain of the Wilkes Prison Ministry. Al Andrews, our, our former pastor, is the president of the board for the Wilkes Prison Ministry, and we have others in the life of our church who have served on that board. That ministry is aimed at being in the prisons to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our, our officer today is Ralph Prince. I love Ralph. He's a fantastic gentleman. He's actually the warden at the local prison, and he has made access far easier for Wilkes Prison Ministry over the course of his tenure and time there. What does that mean? It means that you and I can go into a place where people are locked in a jail cell for something they have done or accused of being done, and you and I can share the gospel with those who need to hear about Jesus. Our obligation as Christians, folks, is to remember those who are in prison. That's not qualified here in the text. It's something you and I are to do. It is showing Christ's love to our neighbors and our family members. It's showing Christ's love to strangers. Let me give you the third Christian duty that's exemplified here in the text. It is this, honor marriage and be pure. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. One way to look at these four specific applications that flow out of love is to look at them as corporate and then personal. So the first two would be corporate, and the second two would be personal. At least some commentators kind of describe it that way. But, but I'm not sure that is the intent, because in this text, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. It's a community imperative. It does absolutely mean, and we're going to apply it here in a moment, it does absolutely mean that as Christians who are married, husbands and wives, we're to be pure in our marriages, we're to honor marriages. But what he's saying to the church at large is he saying to the church, church, you are to honor marriage. You are to treat marriage as God defines it and as God stipulates it. Why would he say that? Because in the first century world, marriage was thought of far differently than God orchestrated and ordained. There were, obviously, we know that sexual temptations have been around for thousands and thousands of years. They didn't start in the 21st century. They've been going on for, for millennia. And one of the ways that some Christians, and there were extreme positions on this, one of the ways that some Christians treated 
the temptations to immorality is they, they began to believe that you needed to be ascetic or they held asceticism, which is basically saying we're going to remove ourselves from all temptations, bodily experiences and temptations. We're going to remain unmarried. Some Christian sects went that way. That came from a, a, a thought process called Gnosticism, which is Neoplatonic. Essentially, the, the, the idea that things that are embodied are things that are evil, things that are in your mind are things that are good. Kind of a dualism is the where that came from. That, that's not the way God dis- defined or gave us marriage or gave us family and, imbi- and, and, and our bodies. But asceticism was one extreme. And that was going on in the first century. There were some who said, okay, we're just going to ignore marriage altogether. We're going to remain single. Roman Catholic Church has done that with their view on celibacy. The other extreme was libertinism, which is what was taking place in the Greco-Roman world. For, for many in the Greco-Roman first century world, marriage was little more than a contract. It was simply a, a man and a woman got together so they could have kids, and then the inheritance would come through that line. That was the picture of marriage. Then after that, nothing else was impermissible. There were all sorts of sexual liaisons, immorality, adultery that were prevalent from wife and from husband in the Greco-Roman world with relation to marriage. So there were these two extremes. Anything goes on one side, or we're not going to get married on the other side. And so the writer says, the, the writer of Hebrews says to the church, you don't need to be on any, in any extreme. You don't need to go back and hold to a form of legalism or asceticism. And you don't need to go back and and join with the crowd and the world around you and hold to libertinism. What you need to do is have God's perspective on marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And and bottom line, what that means for us as Christians today, one of the most countercultural and glorious witnesses that you and I can have as Christians in our world today is to have a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. Because it will stand out. It doesn't look like everything else. It's abnormal. It's not what the world preaches. It's not what our government promotes. It's certainly not what culture and media promote. But it, it is a subversive, subculture, countercultural perspective that points to Jesus. And that's our obligation. Christian, one of the greatest things that you and I can do to make sure that, I, that we're honoring Christ is to honor marriage and to remain pure. Al Mohler uh, the president at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in a, in a book entitled The Gathering Storm, wrote this. He said, The introduction of contraception in the 1960s began to redefine the notion of marriage as an indissoluble union between a man and a woman. When the solemnity and sacredness of sex was diminished, the lifelong covenant of marriage was downgraded to the temporary contract of marriage. Removing the possibility of pregnancy recreated marriage from a covenant relationship into just a really long date with residential benefits. His point in in that book is articulating the political challenges that we're facing as Christians with relation to marriage. But what that means for us as Christians is this. Our obligation is to honor marriage, honor our spouses, honor the relationships that we have as a testimony and a witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. There are too many times where what we do is we give up on something because we don't see it for what God says it is. Our obligation as Christians is not to see marriage for the world says it is, convenience or a contract. What we need to see it as is a covenant, a promise, that when a man makes a promise to a woman before God and a woman makes a promise to a man before God, it's covenanted. It's God's expectation that that remains 
It's, it's what he says. So we're to honor that. And as a church, our obligation is to honor that in the way that we, our perspectives, our theologies, but also our practices in the way that we behave. So we're to honor marriage. That's one thing it means. Uh, we should also pursue purity within marriage and within our view of sexuality. Notice what he says. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Why are we not to lean into libertinism or anything goes? Because God will judge the immoral and the adulterous. Let me just say this. There's some things about this, okay? If you're here and you are in an adulterous relationship, you need to confess that and repent of that before God and before your spouse. Get your heart right before God and before your spouse because God promises to judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He'll forgive you. He absolutely will cleanse your sin. He will wash it away. I can tell you story after story. People that I know, people that I've been around, where they were adulterers, they were sexually immoral, they were fornicators, they were uh, addicted to pornography. Keyword: they were. They've been changed, they've been forgiven, they've been redeemed, they've been made new. But God, if you remain in that pattern of sinful behavior... You can anticipate God's judgment. That's what he promises. He says this over and over in Scripture. So if you're here, you're caught up in sin, you're caught up in unrighteousness, you need to turn away from it, you need to turn to God in purity. And he doesn't just say adultery, he says sexual immorality, which carries with it all sorts of ways that we can be sexually immoral. Why? Because adultery destroys marriages. An adulterous relationship can end a marriage. It doesn't have to. But I've seen it where it does in marriages. Addiction to pornography can end marriages, can destroy relationships and families. And so what God's saying is to honor marriage, those things can't be a part of our lives. Whatever we've got to do to cut them out, we've got to cut them out. Let me meddle for a second, okay? I'm sorry, but I feel like I need to meddle for a moment. You parents with teenage kids, if you give your children a cell phone or internet access that is unfettered, you're essentially handing them uh, access to pornography that would make the original Playboy magazines blush. As parents, our obligation is to guide, instruct, and protect our children. And, and so there ought to be, and, and thank goodness, there are phones you can get for your kids that, that limit or completely keep you from accessing all sorts of internet capabilities. And they may cost more. I'm telling you, the price of your child's purity is far, is far less uh, than the price of the destructive behaviors of being addicted to pornography that would destroy a marriage in the future or destroy a person's desire to even be married in the future. God says we as a church are to honor marriage. So that means we're to pursue purity, whatever it looks like. Jesus put it this way. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. His point was, do whatever it takes to cut out sin in your life. Some of you adults in the room need to do that. I'm talking to some men in this room that need to cut out access to whatever you're being tempted by or controlled by in terms of visually or sexual addictions. God wants us to cut it out and cleanse it away from us. And, and in order to do that, we need to cut some things out, but we need to embrace the right things. In his book, Pure in Heart, Garrett Kell put it this way. He said, purity is an orientation of the faith-filled heart that flees the pleasures of sin and pursues the pleasures of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then he writes, purity for purity's sake is a powerful form of self-serving idolatry that hinders us from seeing God. What we need instead is to fix our eyes on the beauty of God himself. We must kill the sin that tempts us to look away from him, and we kill it by looking at him. Christian in the room, man in the room, woman in the room, and I'm not just talking to you men. Uh, romance novels are a part of this too that create discord morally and, and, and with regard to sexuality. If you want to kill that stuff, yes, set it aside. Yes, remove the temptations. Embrace Jesus. You cannot look at Jesus, pray to Jesus, worship Jesus, read the words of Jesus, and quickly and easily turn back to pornography and sin. It's not possible. Not really. That's why we need to see God as the consuming fire of, uh, of chapter 12. When we see him for who he is, it burns out that junk and that sin in our lives. We might need others to do that as well. We need to honor marriage and be pure. Let me give a word to, to you singles in the room. Uh, because th this is not an admonition that everybody has to be married. Nor is it designed to say anything to you that you're less than. The simple reality is marriage and family are the foundational relationships of society. If you don't have marriage and family and procreation as a result of that, society ends. So God ordained it that way. So we as Christians, whether we're single or married, whether we're widowed or widower, whether we're never going to be married or we're married before, our obligation is to honor marriage in our perspective and in our theology. And we can do that in any number of ways. In fact, I was looking out across our congregations earlier this morning. And I got to looking at people who were widows and widowers. You know, I've seen some of them who have honored marriage. They've honored marriage by taking care of a spouse with dementia for years and for years. They honored marriage by taking care of a spouse with, uh, that was ailing, loving a spouse that doesn't love Jesus. All sort of ways have they honored marriage, and now they find themselves single. Some of you are in the room and you're not married yet. There's no admonition to you that you're less than. Jesus even said in Matthew 19, and he was not married, by the way. He said there are some who are eunuchs by someone else's choice and some who are eunuchs for the kingdom of God. The bottom line is you do not need to be married in order to fully fulfill God's expectation for your life. But all of us need to have a biblical perspective on marriage. And the church is the place where we live that out in honoring marriage and in honoring those who live out marriage in a biblical and in a healthy way. Some of you are here today, and before I give the invitation in just a few minutes, I want to tell you, some of you need to pray for your spouse. Some of you need to pray for that person that's struggling. Some of you need to seek reconciliation and redemption and rescue for that sin. Let me, let me say something else. I'm going to meddle again a moment, okay? Forgive me, but, but there are some folks whose marriages are struggling, and one of the reasons... They can't see a possibility of reconciliation and restoration is because they're not known by anybody. They're, they're living in isolation. I'll tell you, one of the best ways you can protect your marriage, one of the best ways you can honor it, one of the best ways you can help marriages be healthy is being in a small group with others who are struggling and others who are seeing success. 
One of the best ways you can help your marriage is to be in a discipleship group where another guy is holding you accountable and you're talking about your struggles and your wife is talking with another gal about her struggles and creating that sense of relationship and family and community. Knowing and being known is a powerful healing element and a powerful helping element in marriages. The marriages I know, and there are some in our church that are struggling, they're on the cusp of divorce or they're there. One of the reasons they're there is because they're not known by anybody. They don't want to be known by anybody. They're not opening up to other people. They're, they're not trying to seek help in relationship or help in counseling. That is a recipe for separation, and it is not what God says. God says to honor marriage. And being a part of a Christian community, that's what it means for us to honor marriage and, and, and look at it in a biblical framework. I'll give you duty number four. Be content and trust God with money. He finishes up with this very practical element of Christian experience. It says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. He tells us, uh, don't pursue the love of money. The love of money, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, is the root of all kinds of evil. So we're not to trust in money, but we are to seek contentment. Be content. For God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, uh, what's he saying? He's telling us that we can trust God to take care of us. Most of you don't have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from. You know where you're going to eat lunch, or you know what's at home being prepared when you get there. Um, I would practice Christian hospitality today and invite you over to enjoy the delicious roast my wife has made that I was smelling this morning when I got up and got ready for worship service. But my oldest son has strep throat. So you can't come over today, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologize for that. But I know where my meal's going to come from. You do too. You probably know what's in your pantry, in your fridge, which are meals for the rest of the week. But God has promised to meet all of our needs. I will never leave you or forsake you. I want you to watch this. That is a quote from Joshua 1.5. Joshua was leading the people of Israel into the promised land. They only had what they brought from Egypt and had wandered around in the wilderness with it for 40 years. They, didn't, they boycotted Target before there was a Target boycott because they didn't have a Target. They, they couldn't buy anything. All they had was the clothes on their body. That's all they had. They didn't have crops. They didn't have land. They didn't have a 401k. They didn't have a savings account. They didn't have regular employment. They didn't have a job. They didn't know where their money was going to come from. They had none of that when they were there at the entry point of the promised land. And God said to them, I will be with you forever. I will take care of you. I'll be in your midst. I will be your helper, quoting Psalm 118, the next text. God made that promise, and guess what he did? He brought his people into the promised land and provided for them and took care of them. Folks, if God can take care of the people of Israel when they had nothing going into the promised land, I promise you he can take care of us who have a lot more than nothing. Our responsibility is to be content with what we have. Why are, we, why are we to be content? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We're to be content because we know God has promised to meet our needs. Being content carries with it the idea of generosity, blessing others. That, that's, I mean, it, it follows, right? One reason we don't show Christian hospitality is we're, not afraid, we're afraid we can't afford it. I'm saying we can't afford not to. 
We should be generous with what we have. We should be content with what we have because God has met our needs and we ought to be thankful that he's met our needs and show contentment by expressing generosity to other believers. That's the implication. What is contentment? Contentment's really hard to find, especially if we're looking within, if we're looking at what we have, it's really hard to find contentment. I came across this story this week about a king who had a malady, a health problem. And he went to his wise men and doctors and said, how can I deal with this problem that I have? And they said to him, here's what you need. You need to wear the shirt of a contented man. If you find the shirt of a contented man, then you will be healed. So they sent out all of the couriers in the, in the region look at, looking for people in his kingdom that were content. They came back weeks later and they had found nobody content living in the kingdom. None. No contented people. So the king sent him out again to the very farthest reaches of his kingdom. And finally, they came across a man who was content. But he had no shirt. He was content with what he didn't have. Folks, the reason we ought to be content is because of what we do have. I want you to think about this for a moment. It's not incidental that the, pro, that the writer here quotes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is, the, is a place, it's a messianic psalm, where the writer says about Jesus, we read it as we began our worship service, says about Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this is marvelous in our eyes. The original readers of Hebrews would have known that. They were, remember, Hebrew background Christians tempted to go back to faith, go back to Old Testament patterns, they would have known that text. They would have known it was about Jesus. The reason we can be content and trust God with what we have is because Jesus is the one who loved us when we were unlovable. Think about it. We didn't deserve to be loved. He didn't love us as brothers. He loved us as strangers. And, and why can we be content looking at Jesus? Because Jesus had it all. He had glory and worship and adoration in heaven. And he set it all aside to come to earth and be one of those strangers in Mary's house. Be one of those strangers who had nothing. He came as a stranger to show strangers like you and me love. No, no, he didn't have a house where he invited us to eat dinner with him. He has a house over there in heaven where he's going to invite us to share a meal with him. He is the glorious, permanent, wonderful example of hospitality. He came to those who were imprisoned. Imprisoned with sin and sickness and evil and depravity and gave us freedom. Folks, he is the one who designed marriage and he is the exemplary person of purity. He came to show us what it's all about. He came to show us contentment. So I'm going to tell you something. I realize as we look at these applications that, that the writer here has hit some of us where it's difficult and hard. There are some of you in the room that are convicted for your sinfulness and for impurity. There are some of us that are convicted, like me, for lack of hospitality. There are some of us that are convicted in all sort of ways. And I'm going to tell you, the answer to our lack of contentment or to our sinfulness is not to look within and try to fix our own problems. The answer is to look to Jesus. Some of you need to look to Jesus and find rescue and salvation. He is here to forgive you and cleanse you. Some of you need to look to Jesus and find reconciliation for your marriage and for a relationship. 
all of us need to look to Jesus for contentment. He is all we will ever need. And whatever else he's given us is abundance beyond needing him. And we can be content with what we have. So let's look to Christ. Stand with me, if you will. Father, it's not often that, uh, well, it is often that I experience conviction studying your word as I prepare to preach it. But it feels for me today like increasingly you have convicted me as I've preached this text about different things in my own life. Lord, we come to you, as we confessed earlier in song, needing your mercy. I know for a fact that there are marriages in our midst that need reconciliation, that need honoring from husband and wife. I know there are people that need to forgive one another. I know there are people that need to confess impurity or adultery. Lord, I know in our room there are people who are not content, who are afraid and fearful about finances and situations. Lord, there are so many of us that struggle to open our lives up to others in Christian hospitality. Father, we come to you acknowledging our guilt and our sinfulness. We know that our solution doesn't look like fixing ourselves. The solution is Jesus, who through the gospel came to change our hearts. Lord, I pray that I would be a person, that we would be a church that looks to Christ. For the one or the many in this room that need to turn to you in faith and in salvation, I pray, Lord, for their soul today, that they'd follow you, they turn from sin, they come to Christ. For those in the room that are dealing with some things they need to confess and get clean, I pray, Lord, that today would be a starting point on their journey for getting cleansed and getting right with you, turning away and being reconciled. Lord, we pray this, that the glory of the gospel would be made known in Wilkesboro Baptist Church through what you're doing in our hearts and lives, making us people who love you and love others. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.